Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. Timing is everything. In 2017, the American historian Kyle Harper embarked on a book about disease and the course of human history. Two years later, a disease changed, or at least nudged, the course of human history. COVID-19 took most of us by surprise, but it really shouldn't have done. Because, as Kyle Harper shows in his astonishingly rich and detailed history, ours is a plague-filled planet. And there's not been a moment of human history that's not been lived with or shaped by the presence of malign microbes. Until about 150 years ago, humans almost invariably lost these micro battles. And in many parts of the world, we still do. But the astonishing success, at least in the developed world, since the last quarter of the 19th century, has rather blinded us to the huge impact that disease has had on human history. And that story is told in Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. Kyle, welcome to Reading Our Times. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's probably worth trying to be clear what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about plagues or disease. You outline in your opening chapter that when it comes to human disease, we're talking about five entities, really. Tell us what they are and which have been the most significant to our history. Well, big question. And I'd start by dividing disease into two big groups. Think of diseases that are infectious diseases, that is, diseases that are caused by something invading your body that shouldn't be there. And then think of other diseases like cancer and organ diseases, cardiovascular disease. Now, in modern societies, developed societies, most people most of the time die of non-infectious causes. But still, we obviously have infectious diseases globally, even in developed societies. And then there's COVID, which we'll probably get around to at some point. But (laughs) But remember that throughout most of our past as a species, most people, most of the time, until really pretty recently in terms of the the big picture, died of infectious causes. And so died of something invading their body and making them sick. And nature is, is full of diversity and the organisms that cause disease in us are extremely diverse. Some are caused by viruses like AIDS, COVID-19, influenza, yellow fever, and so on. Some are caused by bacteria, everything from plague to cholera to tuberculosis. Some are caused by protozoa, which are single-celled organisms that are a little bit closer to animals and they cause diseases like malaria. Some are caused by fungi by little uh, fungal diseases, although these tend not to be severe unless you have a weakened immune system. And then there are diseases that are caused by worms. And these actually come in all sorts of different biological categories, but several of them are major burden on human health, like hookworm and whipworm and so on. So we have a really vast array of enemies in nature that have evolved clever ways to make us sick. Mm. 
Well, a vast array of enemies indeed. I mentioned in my introduction that the Earth is a plague-filled planet, but perhaps I was being a bit unfair there because you're very clear that there are innumerably more harmless microbes than harmful ones. But one of your main points is that the evolution of harmful microbes, these harmful diseases, kind of runs in parallel with our own evolution, doesn't it? And in particular, with the development of human civilization. Can you explain that? Well, I'd start with the the premise that we need to realize that humans are sometimes not as exceptional as we like to to flatter ourselves. We're we're animals. We're made up of cells that need energy to do things, including reproduce themselves and make copies of our genes. So, I think as a historian, we won't fully understand human history if we treat ourselves apart from nature and sort of the rules that that govern the web of life on Earth. And it's just a really basic fact of ecology that parasitism is pervasive in nature. There's only so much food and energy and nutrients, and everybody's competing to get it at all scales. And parasites are generally small organisms that find some way to exploit the success of a host species. And every kind of life on Earth has parasites. We're no different. We're part of nature. We're subject to these patterns. And As we have multiplied and gotten better and better at getting energy and building more and more human bodies and more and more human cells, there's just a lot more of us to exploit. I'm loath to skip over millennia of prehistory and early history, which you cover so brilliantly in the first 200 pages of your book. But I I really want us to focus in particular on this interaction between plagues and recorded history. And I want to start doing so by looking at the Roman Empire, about which, of course, you've written before. Most people won't ever have heard of the Antonine Plague of the second century, and probably most won't even have heard of the Justinian Plague of the sixth century. But you described the former as probably the single most lethal mortality event in human history up to that time. And the latter, the Justinian Plague, is often credited with dealing the final death blow to Roman imperial hope. So, Can you explain to us how plagues shaped and maybe even ended Roman history? Well, you're you're breaking my heart by reminding me that these plagues aren't universally known, of course. (laughs) Uh, It's my mission to help bring the the knowledge of these to the world. And this is actually how I really, in a lot of ways, got interested in the topic. I got very interested in this series of major pandemics that struck the Romans. And it's, it's what really led me to write this book, was trying to figure out why, what's going on here? Why did these strike the Roman Empire? The Antonine Plague is a major disease outbreak that struck the Roman Empire at its very height. The, the 160s AD, the reign of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, it's really the Roman Empire very nearly at its territorial maximum and certainly at its height of population and prosperity. And then boom, it suffers this complex crisis that has different facets. But one of the major ones that the eyewitnesses tell us about is that there was a a plague. And it's important to remember in English, plague can mean something completely generic, just a sudden outbreak, an epidemic, a pestilence of any kind of disease. Or it can mean the plague, the specific infectious disease caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. I'll come back to the plague in just a second, but the Antonine Plague is just 
the Antonine epidemic or pestilence. It's almost certainly not an outbreak of the plague, the bubonic plague. We don't actually know what it is. We would love to have really hard evidence and people are looking for it because genetic evidence is really becoming more and more important for historians. And yet we haven't yet found the DNA or possibly RNA of whatever it was that caused the Antonine plague. But whatever it was, it clearly struck very fast over an extraordinary expanse of North Africa, the Near East, Southern Europe, and the death tolls that are reported are really, really massive. This is the first transcontinental disease event that we can see. So it's a historically fascinating event that doesn't just knock the Roman Empire over. The Romans don't close shop and go out of business, but it is a moment of change and never again did the Romans have the same level of population? The population never recovers to that level. And it seems like the the Roman system of tax collection and money circulation and army power, geopolitical dominance is never quite the same after this period of crisis. And does the Justinian plague in the 6th century have a similar effect, but on a weakened empire? It is a weaker empire. It's certainly just a different context in the 540s when it strikes. In some ways, the the Roman Empire has already fallen in the western parts of Europe, and Germanic kingdoms like the the kingdoms of the Franks in Britain, different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms have replaced the Roman Empire already for over a century. But the Roman Empire still exists. It's quite powerful in Constantinople, the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Emperor Justinian is really on the warpath, literally, having taken back North Africa, Italy, and parts of Spain, and is really on a successful run when, boom, the plague strikes. And we know with absolute certainty now from DNA evidence that this is bubonic plague. It's Yersinia pestis. And again, the Romans don't fold immediately, but the plague also strikes again and again every 10 to 20 years. And the magnitude of these mortality crises is really unlike any other disease. And I think you can't explain what happens to the failure of Justinian's reconquest without trying to account for this massive biological disaster. It is really important, that point, isn't it? It recurs kind of every generation because we see these events, particularly, I guess, you know, the Black Death as one historical meteorite hitting Europe in particular, I suppose. But Mm -hmm. actually, it's then followed by wave upon wave of smaller meteorites. So is it effectively endemic in the population thereafter? Oh, what a great question. And first of all, I can't agree with you more that really to take account of this unique disease is to realize that it's not just the Black Death, it's the the recurrence of the disease for centuries. And sometimes it's really, really frequent and intense. Other times it's a little bit more in the background. We don't totally understand why that is. There's a lot of good research going on. But I would have to say there's one word you use that I would want to tweak that really helps us get at what a weird disease plague is. Plague is not endemic because endemic means permanently present in a human population. Plague is different because it's really a disease of animals. It's a disease of rodents. And so we think that the way that plague keeps striking every 10 to 20 years is that it becomes not endemic in humans, but enzootic, meaning permanently circulating in animal populations. Probably rodents. We don't actually know what the animal host that keeps it going in Europe was. But this is one of the really interesting questions. The way in which plague 
reminds us our health is really connected to, to animal health. And mm. plague is a disease that sweeps across animal populations and then gets into humans. And then the tide goes back out and it leaves humans and then it comes back in. I'm curious about the tide going out bit as well. I understand why a, a large connected population might become infected by a disease like the plague and spread very rapidly. Why does it ever go out though? Is it people building up immunity and then there isn't enough connectivity so it just dies down? Well, these are million dollar questions that historians have not fully been able to answer. I think it's always a good guess that has something to do with human immune dynamics. But again, for plague, that won't be the whole story because plague never circulates permanently in human populations. It's just not a human disease. So it has to be something going on with animals. It's probably that the reservoir populations, wherever it's lurking, are unstable, but we really don't understand that very well. Here's a big difference between the first pandemic, the plague of Justinian, and the Black Death, the second pandemic, is in the second pandemic, even without fully understanding the nature of the disease, humans figure out some ways to control it, and in particular, quarantine. Mm. And so in Europe, especially, a really massive system of trying to disrupt the spread of the disease via quarantine, shutting down trade and transport and ports, isolating ships that come into to ports to make sure that plague isn't spread into cities. That actually works. And again, the, the evidence is ambiguous, but I think there's pretty good evidence that the humans help send the plague to its demise, at least in Europe. One of the things we always used to be taught at school when we were studying medieval history was that the Black Death was the thing that destroyed European feudalism. It completely changed the economics of the continent. Maybe the structure was already a bit rotten, but it was the Black Death that sent it crumbling to the ground and helped emerge a market economy, and then Europe took over the world. How much truth is there in it? Well, of course, I'm a historian. So one, I like to make things complicated. And two, I like to say that whatever the last generation said was wrong. <laughs> so, so it's got a lot going against it from the beginning. And I still say there's some truth in it if we're careful. What the Black Death does is it suddenly reduces the population in large areas, in some cases by maybe half. And that's just such a shock to the whole socioeconomic system that, of course, it has massive effects. And the effects are different in different places. But in some places, when you lose half the labor force, laborers are able to negotiate higher wages. There's more land units per labor now. So peasants who'd been crowded onto fields with low per capita productivity now have more land. And I think that's particularly true in England. And the story you're telling is kind of a, an English one. Um, we now have more comparative study, and we know that in other places, from Spain to Egypt, the Black Death is not only deadly and obviously terrible for the people that suffer, but even in its wake, it doesn't really benefit the survivors. It just destroys too much of the market economy, destroys too much accumulated capital. So I think the consensus would be it's the Black Death is the long-run effects are actually pretty bad in mm lots of Europe as well. And there's other factors that go into the decline of feudalism that lead to the centralization of states, the rise of markets, the destruction of feudal power because of gunpowder weaponry. So stories like that are never simple, but still the disease is a major shock to the system. And it's clearly involved in the demographic, social and economic changes that happen in the 
14th, 15th centuries. So it's as much as we might want to throw it out, there's still something in the story. Mm. So the disease obviously has a significant impact on European history. And as you say, the 14th, 15th centuries, contagious diseases have a massive impact on the history of the new world in the 16th century. You mentioned in the book as well, this is an extremely politically sensitive subject because it's sometimes deployed almost to downplay the the violent impact that European invaders had on indigenous people in America. But be that as it may, it is nonetheless the case, isn't it, that the impact of infectious diseases brought over in what's called the Columbian Exchange has a deleterious effect on indigenous populations in the Americas. Yeah, that's right. There's a complex backstory here. In the 20th century, historians of the Americas started to argue that actually New World populations before European arrival were very, very large, so that there were 100 million people in the Americas before Columbus. And that created the problem of explaining where the populations had really gone. And so it made a huge need for disease mortality to have accounted for the massive population losses. Over the course of time, the estimates of population in the New World have come down a lot. There are probably Mm. more like 40 or 50 million people in the Americas. And the recognition of the importance of non-disease factors like violence, dislocation, exploitative economic systems of mining in particular, as well as agriculture that grow up in the 16th and 17th centuries, can explain a lot of the population change. You don't have to see this as an either or. Mm -hmm. And the dynamics of imperialism and colonial exploitation really went hand in hand with massive biological change. And I think it's a very compelling fact rooted in close critical analysis of the sources that observers who were there believed that the impact of infectious disease was massive. I also try and put that in a a little bit more of a global perspective because one of the curious things about smallpox is it kills unbelievably tragic number of people in the new world in the 16th century, but it actually kills a tragic number of people in Europe, Africa, and Asia in the 16th and 17th centuries. And so I actually think in some ways it's helpful to see that there's a bigger planet-wide story about some of these diseases that isn't just Europeans bringing their nasty diseases to the new world, but there's this global context of evolution. Well, I was going to ask about that. The impression I get is that this Colombian exchange tends to be more one way than the other. Is that right, that effectively the old world infected the new world more than the new infected the old? And if so, why? Yeah, so there's a lot to your question there. I think the case is very strong for seeing the disease pool of Africa and Eurasia as somehow much worse than the Americas. The Americas hadn't been populated as long. The number of domesticated animals is much lower. The societies in the new world are less connected. So there's kind of a smaller meta population because they don't have horses mainly. There certainly are a huge number of infectious diseases in the Americas before Columbus, but it does seem that the diseases of the old world are worse. Africa 
It has been inhabited by humans from the beginning. Many of our closest relatives in the primate world are there, and we've been exchanging diseases with them for a long time, like the malarias. In Eurasia, you have a huge number of domesticated animals, big cities, big trade networks. So it just seems like the kind of portfolio of infectious diseases is bigger and nastier in the old world than the new. And so the the exchange is very imbalanced when it finally gets underway in the age of transatlantic sale. Mm. Disease also plays a very important background story to the whole slave trade, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it can help us understand one dimension of this really fundamental dynamic in, in human history that, that takes shape in this phase where the triangular trade between Europe and Africa and the new world ends up becoming a vehicle for one of the most long-lasting and purely exploitative systems of human exchange in all of our history, which is the translocation of African peoples into unfreedom in the new world. And there are many dimensions of, of that, many ecological dimensions. But two of the really big examples that I try to bring into the story are malaria and yellow fever. They're both basically tropical diseases. They're both diseases of the old world. They're both vector-borne diseases, so they're transmitted by mosquitoes. Although, really importantly, to get into the nitty-gritty, and you might want to stop me because I love mosquitoes. Um, <laughs> two different kinds of mosquitoes. Malaria is transmitted by Anopheles mosquitoes, and there are already Anopheles mosquitoes in the New World. So the disease is brought over, and it already has mosquitoes that are already here that can transmit it. And then yellow fever, which is translated by Ides Aegypti mosquitoes, which are not in the New World, but are brought to the New World, mm. and so are also part of this huge biological integration that goes on. And so malaria and yellow fever become really demographically horrific diseases in the New World, particularly in the tropical regions where, where you have really intense sugar production, really intense exploitation. And this is demographically horrible for the enslaved population. And it's just a terrible place for, for enslaved peoples, for slave owners. And yet, because of the, the profits to be made off the sugar economy, it just keeps drawing in settlers who, who then import slaves. So it's this horrible system that I think the disease dimension helps us really understand the experience of life and death and the demographic context of, of how the plantation economy worked. Mm. The story begins to change slowly, doesn't it, from, say, the end of the 17th century. It's a period that you called a little divergence, I guess, in contrast to what's sometimes called the great divergence from 1800 or so. This is the moment at which human life expectancy in some parts of the world slowly begins to creep up. Our medical knowledge slowly gets better and also the state gets slightly better at controlling these different infections. When would you date this to and why do things change? Well, this is a really important part of the story that's maybe less familiar than the advances of the 19th century. So there's a kind of triumphalist story that in the mid-19th century Europeans discovered germs and you have the public health reformers and you have sewage and the British figure out how to provide clean water to London and everything starts to get better. There's some truth in that again, but I think there's a lot going on before you get to the really peak industrialization period of the 19th century. The 18th century, the age of the enlightenment, doesn't enjoy quite the same level of dramatic improvements. But it's really where you start to see sustained progress. 
in human control of infectious disease. And so the first great global drug of any significance is cinchona bark. It's an Andean tree bark that actually works against malaria mm. that is discovered by indigenous healers in the Andes, is transmitted to the Spanish uh, in the 17th century, starts to spread in Europe in the 18th century, even more so. Smallpox inoculation, which is a predecessor of vaccination. It's much more dangerous because you're introducing live virus of the actual smallpox virus, not of cowpox virus, but it works and inoculation starts to spread. We don't actually know exactly when and where, probably from China, maybe independently from Africa. Well, um, I was just going to ask about that, if I might, because we associate yep. inoculation with one of the advances in Western Europe and the North Atlantic. But you make the point, don't you, just then, that it probably predates in China by centuries or so. So why aren't these health reforms Chinese? I think the best consensus now is probably that inoculation emerges from China, certainly by the, the 16th century. And it spreads on global networks. It may have developed at other times, other places. It's very hard to explain, actually. In the early 18th century in Boston, Cotton Mather learns of inoculation from an enslaved West African named Onesimus. And so did it get from China to Africa? Did it get from Africa to China? There's a lot of fragments in our knowledge here, but it certainly didn't originate in Europe. It reaches Europe around 1700, particularly it reaches England. And the English can be proud of the fact that once it reaches England, there's an important aristocratic woman, Lady Mary Montagu, who discovers it in Istanbul and wants to have her kids vaccinated, convinces the royal family. They run basically these human trials that are <laughs> uh, not okay yeah. uh, on prisoners and orphans that, that demonstrate the, the efficacy and safety of it. And from there, inoculation does disseminate from England to much of Europe in the 18th century. So it doesn't originate in England, but, but England plays an important role in helping mm. disseminate it throughout, mm. throughout Western Europe. So you mentioned the Great Escape, as the economist Angus Deaton calls it, and the 19th century onward, where massive public health reform and also the germ theory of disease transforms our understanding of what's happening. But at the same time, I was very struck, I didn't know this, that there's a third outbreak of the plague at the end of the 19th century. And of course, there's a pandemic, which popularly goes under the name of the Spanish flu at the end of the First World War. So even though we make these significant advances at the end of the 19th century, it is by no means the case that these infectious diseases are defeated. Right. That's the, the story I really want to tell is not just that in modern times, humans figure it all out and we conquer infectious diseases. First of all, we can never conquer infectious disease. We can control it through a variety of tools, biomedical and social. But as we've exploded in number and become more connected and live in cities, the problem of infectious disease, the challenge has actually gotten bigger. So I think there's a, a straight line of continuity from the cholera pandemics that start in the early 19th century to the, the last really big effort of bubonic plague to become a, a global pandemic at the end of the 19th century to the Spanish flu. I mean, all of those are really pandemics that are born of steam-based travel, of steamships and railroads. And then it continues. Polio is a much bigger global threat in the 20th century. And of course, AIDS is the, in many ways, the great 
infectious disease, the great pandemic of the 20th century. And then in the last generation, there's been constant efforts by nature to throw up new infectious diseases. We've had a lot of near misses. So that's the, the deeper context of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But the, the story of modernity isn't just that the humans figure it out and we conquer infectious disease. It's actually, we've had to run faster to sort yes. of stay ahead. And we have in many ways. We've gained really systematic understanding of the causes of infectious disease and a lot of tools from antibiotics and therapeutics to, to vaccines that do give us a, a huge advantage. Yes. Well, I guess it would be remiss of me not to ask about COVID-19, of course. We refer to it as a pandemic, but to be honest, its impact compared with those of the pandemics of the past has been pretty minimal. An unfair question to ask, really. What do you think its longer-term impact is likely to be? Yeah, you're right in framing it exactly that way, because the mortality level of pandemics in the past was often orders of magnitude greater than COVID-19. And simply our ability to, to manage the disease and now to largely prevent the disease with vaccines is a huge difference that makes it hard to compare. In the case of COVID-19, it's a very severe disease and it's killed a tragic number of people, but its main impacts are less through the reduction of population, but just the trauma, the disruption, the unequal impacts within and between societies. But I also think we're just living through this pandemic that is caused by a virus. It's a virus that just has figured out how to exploit <laughs> the way we live. And so I, I think, first of all, the pandemic isn't over. And unfortunately, even though we have the tools to stop it in its tracks, we don't have the social collaboration and social trust that would be required right now. I don't know whether I'm an optimist or pessimist about where the, the pandemic's going to go. But my gut is that we're not going to just turn the corner and be looking back in two or three years and think of it as something that's really gone. Mm. Um, I think we can get greater and greater control, particularly some of the therapeutics, like the pills that you know you can take orally to, to control the disease. If those continue to, to advance, we may get more and more and more control. But I also wouldn't be surprised if there's another turn or two in the pandemic. Evolution mm. is relentless and sneaky. And the virus has a lot of incentive to try and sneak around our immunity to get around our vaccines. And But we may want to be done with it, but I think nature is not going to stand yeah. still. Well, you say at one point at the end of the book, historians make poor journalists and worse futurists. So for me to conclude by asking you to predict the future is just completely <laughs> unreasonable. But the reason I do so is that obviously there's a huge amount of chatter about this. And on the one hand, you have the kind of Optimists, if you like, people like Steven Pinker, who place a lot of emphasis on our capacity to understand and to manipulate and to deal with the challenges that the world throws at us. And at the other hand, you have people who talk about the evolution of bacteria that are totally resistant and the emergence of biological warfare and other horrible things. So if you were to gaze into your crystal ball, having written a book about disease in the course of human history, what would you say about disease and the future of human history? Oh, gosh. Sorry. <laughs> I think this is, uh, that's okay. That's fair. It's fun to talk about. Diseases are going to keep getting worse, and we are our own worst enemy. You mentioned the weaponization of biological agents, um, which I think are, is a terrifying threat. Um, and this pandemic has exposed how vulnerable our societies are. So am I in the very long run an optimist or kind of a dystopian 
I don't know. I, I definitely go back and forth. The power of human innovation is amazing. And so I will say this, when we do have the ability to step back from COVID, we're going to see this as a moment of unbelievable innovation. And the sheer volume of human ingenuity that has been focused on this problem yes. is unbelievable. Like the there's never before, I think, in the planet have so many brilliant humans been so focused on solving one challenge. I think you're going to see continued advances in microbiology and viral therapeutics that are going to not just sort of be like a minor step forward in our control over infectious disease. I think they're going to be of enduring and, and systemic value against this disease and others that, that exist and are yet to exist. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, but at the same time, nature is more complicated than, than we intuitively grasp. And evolution is very relentless and very crafty. And what humans have done to the planet over the last two or three generations, if you really, I think, see it in deeper perspective is, is pretty terrifying. And we don't really know where it leads or, or how it ends. So I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely a, a mixed bag of optimism and pessimism and um, think that we will have to come up with both technical as well as more political and social adaptations to really have a, a healthy relationship with the planet, including its microbes. The book is called Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. Kyle Harper, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you. It was great fun. You've been listening to the final episode in the third series of Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. I want to express my thanks to all my guests this series. France Duval, Ian McGilchrist, Helen Joyce, Sumantra Bose, Janet Soskis, Anna Rowlands and Kyle Harper. I want to give particular thanks to my brilliant producer Phil Bodger and to Nina Humphreys for her wonderful theme music. And I want to thank the team at Theos, Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series and I hope it's encouraged you to go out and buy and read some of the books we've been talking about. We'll be back for another series later on next year. But until then, take care.